This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week I was debating which episode to release. And I realized, you know, we're coming up on Rosh Hashanah and the high holiday period. It's a time of redemption. It's a time of renewal. It's a time of repentance and return in the Jewish religion. For those, of course, listening at the time of this release or close to it. And so I thought, are there any episodes that reflect on those themes? And when I looked down the list of those that I've already recorded that are awaiting release, I realized that one stood out more than any other, and that was my conversation with Yechezkel Stelzer. Yechezkel Stelzer has done a a really wide variety of interesting things over his career. Uh, He himself is someone that did not grow up observant and is a Choser B'Tshuva, someone who returned to Judaism later in life. And he's held a wide variety of roles, run different organizations, lots of projects aimed at bringing other Jews back including something called Hijab Root, a massive television station, and other projects. But most recently, he's been the director of Guard Your Eyes. Guard Your Eyes is a website and really a community online that helps people, mostly men, young men, but people of all ages and women as well, deal with internet addiction, pornography addiction, and all of the attendant challenges that come along with it. Now, this is, of course, uh, an issue that exists in any population and really across the world, but is particularly sensitive in a Jewish community and in a religious Jewish context, whereby there are added layers of perhaps stigma, certainly obligations and proscriptions governing behavior and the ethics around sexual activity and all which goes with that. This is definitely a more sensitive topic in terms of the maturity level of the content that I'm used to putting out. And I hope that if anyone has children listening, you will be forewarned ahead of time that there are some explicit parts here. And especially in the second half of the interview, it's a pretty open conversation. I also want to note that in general, because of the the way the conversation flowed, there was a little bit more Hebrew than usual. Uh, Some of the terms that I normally like to make sure are translated and concepts explained that might be less familiar to somebody not overly familiar with the rhythms or vocabulary of observant Jewish communities would still be able to understand. But the way that this conversation went, I just wasn't able at every moment to ensure that everything was translated or explained fully. So I think you'll get the idea no matter what, but there might be a couple of phrases or words that are unfamiliar if you're not used to them. With all of that background and all of those disclaimers, I do hope you'll listen carefully to this conversation. It's really interesting. It's a unique and different sort of window into the Jewish community that many people, many listeners may not have had access to before. And it touches on a lot of, again, sensitive and very contemporary topics. It might elicit strong reactions one way or the other, and that's fine, that's great but I think you'll sense a really passionate and committed approach to addressing very real issues, very raw issues 
in the Jewish world. A reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you might be listening. Please let your friends know as well. We're always looking for more listenership, which happens mostly through word of mouth and through your spreading the word. And now to our conversation with Gargerize Director, among a host of other titles and fascinating professional accolades, Yechezkel Stelzer. We are here with Yechezkel Stelzer, the director of Guard Your Eyes, which is a really, really unique online organization dealing with some of the most sensitive issues when it comes to internet addiction, pornography, and all kinds of struggles that people have with the, the modern world and, and the unique era in which we live. Uh, how are you, Yechezkel? Great. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining, and I know you're coming to us from the Holy Land, right outside Jerusalem, I believe, in a town called Telstone. I see you like Z's. You got Stelzer, Telstone. <laughs> so uh, a, cre- a great place that I love to look at from the highway as I drive by. I don't stop there often, but um, I did have a Pesach Seder there in uh, 1997. That was quite memorable. So uh, at the Blyweiss family, if you know, if you know Menashe Blyweiss. Yeah, sure. Very but nice. <laughs> in any event, um, so... Where are you from? You guys go take us back to kind of your upbringing and were you born in Israel? Did you grow up there or are you, where, where are you from exactly? I was born in Argentina, 1971. I'm 48 years old. Uh, my parents made Aliyah in 1976 so when I was five. My parents, the brother and sister and me, uh, we moved to, we were in Merkaz Klitan, an absorption center in Mevaseret, Sia, not far from oh, where that, I lived. I went to Yeshiva in Mevaseret, so that's great. Ah, very nice. And then uh, half a year later, we moved to Gilo and then to, Je- to central Jerusalem. I went to school in the gymnasia in a secular school. And when I was uh, about 13, my, we moved to Canada. We stopped in England a little bit. I learned their English from watching television a bit and hanging out uh, in rugby stadiums. And, uh, and then we went to Winnipeg, Canada, Winnipeg. I was there for high school. Went to University of Montreal, McGill. Came back for the army in Israel. I came, sorry, came back for one-year program in Israel, 91, 92. Finished my degree in Montreal. Came back for the army. Volunteered for the IDF. I was a research officer in the behavioral science department. I dealt with suicides in the army and manpower selection interviews, psychological interviews for officers who wanted to work for the army. And then I got, went to England. I, I studied in London School of Economics for my master's in development studies, came back to Israel, and I've been living most uh, ever since. Uh, besides, I went on Shlichus for Eshetora once to Flatbush uh, <laughs> in 2000 for Project Sleeping Giant or Inspired, Project Inspired before it, was, it started. Uh, and then uh, most of my life I've been uh, otherwise in Israel. Okay, a lot yeah. to unpack there. So going back to back to the Argentina, I guess was was Buenos Aires, or uh, that's the only city I know. So <laughs> yeah, Buenos Aires. That's okay. Then I, then I was successful. Great. So how long was your family there? Was were there generations there? Or, well, I know a lot of survivors uh, ended up there. What was the origin of your family there? 
Ah, so it's an interesting story. Okay, so I'll tell you. My, my, from one side, my father's side, uh, they came from Poland, from, from Galicia. They're a family of 13 uh, children. Um, about seven, eight of them made it to Argentina before the Second World War, around the, in the late 20s, early 30s. And the other half uh, of the family uh, were, died uh, running away or in, in camps, or, uh, and they didn't make it. Um, so my father, my grandfather, Saba Yitzchak, grandfather Yitzchak was the, with his brother, Chaim, were the first two who came, and then they brought the other brothers and sisters from Europe, one at a time or two at a time. And they were Shomer Shabbos, they established a shul in Argent, Buenos Aires, and uh, got married, my, my, they had two kids, my father and his sister. Uh, my father was actually also like, uh, was in the part of the fold till he was about 15. He went to med school when he was 15, graduated as a psychiatrist at age 21. And then he became uh, more involved with uh, leftist, uh, uh, both, uh, both uh, therapeutically Freudian type of uh, psychiatry and also as far as uh, politically with the left. And that's part of the reason we had to leave Argentina because the military regime there my father had got a little bit into trouble with them and people were disappearing, if you remember, in the 70s. Um, and we had to run away from Argentina. My grandfather was uh, closer to the kept still Shabbos. Like I said, he told my father, if you go to Israel, I'll come after you. My father didn't have such an affiliation for Israel or for Yiddishkeit. But I said, okay, fine, we'll try it. Went to the Sochnut, they gave him a free ticket. We said, we'll go, he said, we'll go try Israel. My grandfather never came to Israel, but that's how we made it, thanks to my... Saba Yitzchak. From my other side of the family, my grand, my mother's side, my grandfather came from Russia, the, from the Russian-Romanian border, I think, in 1905 with the colonies of Baron Hirsch. In 1905, he made it. I think it was just a grandchild. Both my grandmothers on both sides were born in Argentina, but I think originally they were both either from Russian or Polish sort of descent. And uh, yeah, that part of the, the, there's more to the story of my grandfather. It's like, I don't know if we'll have time to, part of my tshuva story has to do with him more, more specifically, but uh, you lead the show wherever you want to go. Your family eventually made Aliyah and was there any particular impetus for that? And, and then ultimately, why did they leave? It's, it sounds like they were there for, for a short time and then went to, uh, to back to the, unpromised land and particularly a, a very cold unpromised land in Winnipeg. <laughs> right. So wait, so why the Aliyah, like I said, like it was like a, the, the, it was a time to leave the, because there was danger. My cousins, actually I have cousins that were young Zionist activists in, in Argentina were arrested. You know, there was a time like you, you know, a little bit like, like in the Iron Curtain types of uh, regimes where they, you know, were arresting Jews for activism this or activism that. And my cousins were arrested. They were also my, and, and the, being arrested was very dangerous. People would get arrested and then disappear. And they would find them, they found them years later in like mass graves under a stadium in downtown Jeru uh, Buenos Aires. And it was, uh, it was a dangerous time. People, once you disappeared, they didn't know where you were taken. They said they would throw them off helicopters over the ocean. And it was uh, not a, it was a pretty scary time in Argentina. Uh, so uh, it just seemed like it was, you know, my father's, uh, acquaintances, colleagues, or apparently someone that were disappearing. And it, it felt like it was getting tighter and closer. My father, like they, they hid some some activists in their house also. It felt like it was getting too, too much heat and they had to get out. So either, my father had a preference to go to Spain. He knew the language, professionally be better. 
but like I said, thanks to my grandfather, we made to, to Israel. Why we left uh, Israel? It wasn't supposed to be. It was like yeah, my father's like like said, psychiatrist. He had a, he was interested in sabbatical. They have this concept in the academic world and medical world that takes sabbaticals. And Israel is a small country. People, you know, in the old days, they they like to travel a lot. And going on a sabbatical was the thing to do when you're in a, either a professor or a doctor in a hospital. So he, he did a sabbatical. He got a sabbatical in Winnipeg. And they say in Hebrew, he only meant to go for a year or two just for that sabbatical. And they're Famous still, last they're, words. <laughs> yeah, they're sitting in, in Israel, there's that saying, it's called Yoshvim ala Mizvadot. We're still sitting on the suitcases. We didn't unpack. So that's, they, did, they sat on the Mizvadot for 20, 30 years until uh, they're sort of still based there now for medical reasons there. They're back in Jerusalem, and, and uh, but uh, really they, they stayed there. And uh, why did they move? You know, it's, you know, it is a comfortable life professionally. And uh, for psychiatrists, Winnipeg, Canada is a very comfortable environment because there's like Medicare, which means that there's endless lines of, of clients and you don't have to, and if the government pays like, you know, for any, any treatments they want, so there's endless amount of work. And, and is, uh, is, you know, it's very rewarding to be able to help so many people. So he just found it very comfortable professionally in Canada. And uh, that's where he stayed. So what eventually brought you back? You mentioned uh, you had your uh, kind of yeah. religious revival and, and also that you came on a gap year and eventually did the army. What was, what was your really, story? 91, 91, the Gulf War. I, so I left Israel like in like my teenage years. It was uh, 14, 13, 14. And I came back one summer to be with my friends. I thought I was going to stay. You know, I, was, I felt like, you know, it was quite a, I wasn't so, it wasn't so amazing to move to Winnipeg for many reasons. And the first day I came there, I was like, there were swastikas all over the school. You know, it was set at a Nazi school. I don't know if that was Dafka, like for a welcoming for me or not, but it's definitely a sign that stayed stay with me for a while. It wasn't the easiest uh, move to Winnipeg as a teenager. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't bad. Some nice things about it. Skiing was good, and I made some good friends. But it was a, quite a change. Um, and so, however, is that and I to go go back to Israel. And in '91 uh, was the Gulf War. All my childhood friends were in the army, and you know, from an Israeli kid, that everyone's in the army and is fighting, and it's going to be a war, and going to make people going to be heroes, and you can really make a difference. I always had that sort of like very idealistic part of me. And, uh, you know, having it, you know, a, a big war and all my friends there and this, it made me feel like, like I'm really out of it. I'm in the wrong place in the wrong time and I got to be back. And I figured I, uh, I got to go back when, and I, I, uh, you know, I wasn't ready to just like pack everything and just leave, but I made the, the move to start moving back. I went back a few months later. I, I went to university there a few months later, the war was over by the time I got there. And, but I felt very strong. I got to come back. And so I just went to finish my degree because I wasn't going to leave without the degree another year. And then I came back and volunteered for the, for the army. And uh, that was, I decided that's where I was going to stay. Um, that was pretty much it. What so tell me about your religious renaissance, so to speak. Ah, okay. So that's, uh, I'll have to find the public version. To, to, uh, to... <laughs> no, no, no. We want the private version. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit uh, private. But okay, I'll tell you. So I, I've always just the had... two of us, Yechazkel. Just the two of us. <laughs> so uh, um, let's see. Let's see what I can tell you. So I've always had this. Uh, you know, with my grandfather being, you know, Shem Shabbos, and my father sort of breaking away, and growing up in Israel, actually, it was quite a anti-religious sort of environment where I was. 
you know, I remember in my young ages, there was like, you know, there was these demonstrations against the Haredim that they were, they wanted to shut down the, the movie theaters in downtown Jerusalem. And that was the spirit that I grew up in, like, you know, very like secular, gymnasia, anti-religious sort of environment. But somehow because of my grandfather he used to come every year for the high holidays and he, had, he used to buy seats in the great synagogue on King George and used to take me. I always had like a warm place for tradition and for Yiddishkeit. I wasn't a big believer. I didn't have, I thought it was a nice thing that, you know, from the old country people do nice things that don't make too much sense, but it's a, it's a nice thing. And um, so I had a nice bar mitzvah. I wanted to do a bar mitzvah. I did my, with my grandfather came, we did a bar mitzvah at the wall. With Aliyah Latora, big, uh, bigger than my wedding, we did a bar mitzvah in the <laughs> Renaissance at the entrance of town. My grandfather paid for, and it was uh, that was you know I was out of this. And um, when my grandfather uh, passed away, uh, I was must have been about. Uh, I'll go back. Sorry, I was uh, like back and forth, and it was really being. I had this question, you know, who am I? What am I? Am I Israeli? Am I Jewish? Should I go back to Israel? Why should I go back to Israel? Um, is there any in any sense to this religion or not? Uh, should I be a bigger part of it? Uh, and when I came back to Israel in 91, 92, I did get a little more exposure and I was more open. Like I had to go all the way to Canada and come back as a Canadian to be able to learn the Yiddishkeit because in Israel, growing up in Jerusalem, it was like the wall between secular and religion and religious people was very, very high. It was like, you know, it was very anti-environment. But coming back as a, to the one-year program as a Canadian, even though I was quite Israeli, it opened up a lot of doors that were closed to me as an Israeli. For example, Jeff Seidel and Orsa Melch and Shator. As an Israeli, there was, you know, we'd never step into or no one would ever reach out to you. But I did get a little exposed to both Jeff Seidel. I did a discovery seminar. I wrote myself after, they make you write a letter to yourself when you finish the seminar. And, I, and then they mail it to you after six months. I promised myself it was going to be, I was really affected. I was never going to do this and I was going to do that. Then once I got it, six months later, I was back in Montreal. I ripped the letter, didn't open it. But, uh, you know, I had a little bit uh, back and forth learning and getting a little more interested. I started, I went back to Montreal. I started on the Lutzfilin, learning with the Chabad rabbi a little but another, nothing really clinched. Then after the army, the army again had this like sort of very cooling effect on me. And after the army, I went to England, uh, again, to a very secular environment, um, until, you know, the, the murder, Robin's murder was something, again, that woke me up. So, like, I got to get back home. You know, the country's burning. It's going to be a big problem, a big civil war. I got to get back. And I left England, came back after I finished my degree. But um, then the story goes that, so I had a back and forth to go to some shiurim here there. You know, I was uh, warmish, but nothing really clinked. I never really, like, uh, went all the way um, to make any commitments as far as um, Yiddishkeit, Judaism. But then my grandfather passed away and my father gave me his tefillin because he knew I had an interest in, uh, in Yiddishkeit. And about uh, two years after my grandfather passed away, after I read some Holocaust books on Shabbos, most of Shabbos I felt like very, you know, this Holocaust stories like make you feel like very I don't know, overwhelmed or like, I had to put on tefillin. I haven't put tefillin for a few years. I put on my grandfather's tefillin. And I, I decided I have to, let's say I said I'm going to start keeping Shabbos and start putting tefillin. And ended up that it was like uh, the day I made the decision to do this was the, and that I put on this tefillin on my grandfather, it was the yurt of my grandfather. I didn't even know. It was Yudgim El Sivan, it was the yurt of my grandfather. 
Saba Yitzchak, and somehow it's something just happened, and I it was like a, a week after Shavuos, and I which happened to spend like in the I stayed up all night and this, and then a week later I wanted to fill in, and I somehow had a clarity that I wanted to just, you know, this is what I wanted, and I was going to start keeping Shabbos to fill in. I went to start Yishir. I was working for the Knesset for Yuda Arel as the as a parliamentary assistant. I stopped working twice a week because the Knesset was off. I started learning in Aish. Um, someone there was like some fellowships for students from Hebrew, which I joined. Someone told me about. I, I got to know of Noah Weinberg, Moti Berger. I fell in love with them and I with Eish Torah, and I started learning twice a week. And then, uh, then a few months later, I was offered a position in the Prime Minister's office, which was my dream. Netanyahu was there. It was 97, 1997. Benjamin Netanyahu was the Prime Minister. Moshe Leon was the Mankal of the, the CEO of the, of, of the Prime Minister's office. And this was my dream job. It was like I was 24, 25, and I knew, you know, this is too good to be true. It's like an advice to the Prime Minister on poverty, and we set up this poverty agency in the Prime Minister's office. And I, I just, I somehow was like, I, it was like, I knew that I was, I was given this opportunity to make a decision. Like it was given, like somehow everything got fast forwarded. And I had to, you know, I was given this chance just to show me, like, you know, you can have it. It's this or this, you got to pick. I, I, it was just, I had like a very, uh, like, clear clarity that this is like, there's a decision to be made about which life do you want? You want this life or that life? And it was like really put to me, like, you know, the platter to choose. And I, I chose, I, I just, I, I left it. I joined Rav Noach, Weinberg Zatzal, Inisha Torah. A year after, and a half after that, I had smicha from Rav Zalman Chemer Goldberg. I was married. Had uh, we got a year later, had a kid. I was in Flatbush on Shtichos Reshator trying to start Sleeping Giant and Project Inspired. Yeah, Project Inspire is about helping people in the broader religious community uh, learn to be able to reach out beyond their own community confines and connect with people across the Jewish spectrum uh, through various events and study together and holiday parties and things like that. Yeah. So I, yeah, when I came to Eshetor, I was I was I was very uh, taken by her. No, I, I mean from I forgot to tell you from age I didn't you didn't ask me I didn't, you didn't tell you, but from age five I had this this other aspect to me. I I wanted I was very idealistic, like uh, so I connected to Rav Noach very much. From age five I wanted to I had this uh, idea that I was going to change the world. I wanted to be a world economist to save the children from hunger. I used to watch TV and the news and see all these uh, Somalia and Cambodia, people starving. I decided I was going to work for the United Nations. I was going to save the kids from, from uh, poverty in the world and hunger. And that's what I was going to do with my life. And I really, that's what I studied also in, in McGill. I studied the development economics and then London School of Economics. That's what I started third world economics. When I worked in the Knesset, it was also around the poverty bill, how to help. That was my specialty and also the prime minister's office. So this thing about how, you know, to change the world like in a big way was like somehow I, I very much connected to Rav Noach's vision about how we're going to make the, the world a better place. So I, I was, I, you know, I mean, when, when someone like Rav Noach tells you I need you, you know, to help me in this revolution. And it's, it's like, you know, it's how can you say no, you know, it's like this tremendous, huge person who's a, a giant in so many ways. You know, where are you going to find in the world today? Anyone who tells you, I really need you to help me make the world a better place and really mean it and really invite you. And did you let, let him into his, you know, into his cabinet and, uh, and you know, to make the, to really fight. The, looking for the 10, 10 good men, right? He was looking for his 10. 
right, right. Ten good men. But anyone, you know, he's invited anybody. But yeah, he would, would prefer them to be men. But he, you know, he really invited anybody who he met to join him in, you know, making the world uh, holier, better. I just more. finished reading the uh, biography that came out by uh, Jonathan Rosenblum of him. And I also uh, owe a lot of gratitude to him because my parents actually met at his apartment um, many, many years ago. So I have a lot of personal gratitude there as well. So where did you go professionally? You had this background in sort of developmental economics, some psychological work in your, in your background as well with the army and so forth. And you also had done some, you know, some study and some outreach through a Torah. Where did your career take you? So it started really within Aish. I did a few a few major projects that were the highlight of my work with Aish, and that some of them are continued afterwards. One of them was my first project with Aish was the, the Nachal Haredi. I was uh, Rav Noach was actually people might not know, maybe it is in the biography. I didn't read it, but uh, I, I, I raised money from Rav Noach to start the first uh, Nachal Haredi. Really, that was your that was your impetus. I, I wasn't my idea, but I, I, I joined like the very, very first core of activists in the first, uh, in, it was 1998, before it started. And I was, again, like if you remember my background, being come from the gymnasia, I was interested in Yiddish guy, but I still had this very thing on Bacharadium and that they should all go to the army and there's no way. And if I'm going to be joining their ranks, you know, we're going to have to deal with this problem first. So I, my first, uh, what I, first projects I was, uh, wanted to, to you know, get off the ground was you know that we have to find a solution that some you know whoever is not learning, whoever is you know why shouldn't they go to the army? And there was this, uh, someone was starting this initiative, so I was trying to help them, and I got Rav Noach to donate uh, eight thousand dollars, eight hundred dollars per head for eighty of the first kids to join, like to recruit to help recruit eighty kids, eighty dollars, hundred dollars a head to get kids off the street to go to the army for eighty kids. And also I got a uh, certain Rabbanim to go to the bases, um, the, the chief rabbi of the Rova and, uh, and the Rabbanim to, to give them chizok and to get involved. And so that was my first project. And, and uh, that, my involvement with that, uh, with that the army and uh, continued for many years as well, so that I'm still involved with certain uh, legislations. And right now the, the new thing is how to work on, I did a campaign recently um, to, to raise awareness for for even maybe finding a solution of, of, of giving a, a ptor for actually getting the Haredi not to go to the army. And anyone who doesn't want to go to the army not to go to the army, because really the army doesn't need them anymore. And it's a bit of a, a, bit of a farce. And there's been a lot of uh, actually positive feedback. For example, the chief of staff, Ehud uh, Barak, in his political party made it on his platform for the first time that he's also backing this thing that we should give the Harim and the Ptor in the army, etc. So that's one one angle. Another thing was the television. I, I helped start Hida Brut and also got uh, Rav Noach on television and Rabbi Zinyan Grice and Rabbi Wine on television. I got helped Hida Brut get their license at the beginning of time. Because when I came to Asia, I heard Rav Noach say, you know, we got we to gotta reach out, we got to reach millions. But and their biggest project was Project Discovery, which was hitting 30,000 people a year. I talked to Roshiva, Rav Noach, you know, you're talking big, but... You got to close the gap, you know, we're, we're not going to, Discovery's not going to do it. And we got to think bigger, you know, you got to go to the media, you got to go to television, you got to hit, uh, you know, 
really reach the masses. I said, I, we don't know television. We don't know what to, what do you want from us and this and that. But somehow, you know, I started with Rabbi Wine, then Rabbi, Rabbi Tzinyang Rice, and then he got convinced. We, I did, so I did with Rav Noach, a TV show called Ask the Rabbi. We did 26 episodes. Then Aish got more into, into videos, not so much TV, but uh, Rafael Shore got, uh, started doing more, more films, etc. So Annie Dabrut took off. And my, one of my biggest regrets is I didn't manage to convince them that we should do like a TV channel. That was one of my things I was trying to lobby pretty strong in Aish. How did you get a, connected to Hida Brut and, 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 you know, how did you have the connections to get Aish on TV? So uh, originally there was like uh, the way the brew got on, the way I got on TV was this, there was a public service uh, channel. Like people in America they have PBS, something like yep. that, which allows for public bodies to broadcast, which is sort of what it is. Like if you have, uh, so it's sort of an open television. It's like sort of before, it was, uh, this was before the major internet days. But, uh, you know, beforehand, like, you know, you wanted to put anything on TV, you have to go through the major channels. Except there was this something called the public uh, service uh, channel, which is a little more open, but still you need a license to go through it. You have to have, a, you have, to have an NGO, you got to get a license, you got to get approved, you got to go through the Minister of Communication. And they didn't know, and it was a bit complicated, bureaucratic to do it because I was a little bit of a Knesset, a lot of connections. I managed to get through the bureaucracy, get myself a license, and then I helped get Ida Brut their first license to be a broadcasting unit inside this larger, this until they got their own independent broadcast channel, which is what I failed to do with Aish. They didn't uh, quite see that where this was going to go. So, Have you stayed involved with the television side? Um, for a few years, for a few years, but uh, not so much lately. I still, uh, I, 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 I did, worked a little with Channel 2. We tried, we did some public service analysis. My, my other major project after a while was a Shmir Salashan campaign which was sort of based on an Ashtida one in America, Rabbi Erwin Katsov, and I think Rabbi Feld, that words can heal, words can hurt. And they got a lot of like uh, media attention and a big coalition of both secular and even non-Jewish Jews to, to talk about the issue of gossip and to raise awareness as a doorway to teach people about the beauty of the of Shmira Salash and the, the laws of, of speech and the laws of Ben Adam Lechavero between men and, and his fellow which is such a beautiful part of Yiddishkeit. And, and it was, uh, I, want, I brought it to Israel. So we did a, we did a campaigning with cooperation with Ministry of Education and the TV channels. They got tremendous amounts of free airtime in most uh, major channels. And we got about $2 million worth of free airtime for these PSAs about, uh, with all the celebrities, we recruited about 30, 40 celebrities, soccer players, singers, uh, artists to speak about. Who were the, some of the celebrities that uh, did it? Uh, it's a, I don't remember all the names offhand, but it's uh, like singers Pablo. For the, the, the few don't know, don't put me on the spot with the, but uh, artists, actors. Uh, this was already back in 2006, uh, it's a little past us twice. I can, can send you the PSA, you can look yourself. But uh, famous people in Israel, soccer players at the time, I don't remember all the names now, but um, it made quite a splash. That was my last TV. Uh, project, but otherwise, I oh, know. Sorry, uh, we uh, yeah, TV. Whenever we we did the public service analysis, also with my lobbying, the last few years about the internet law. With uh, we're trying to get uh, filtered internet as a default, so we we did a lot of public service announcements using both free airtime from the elections that they give. We actually run like a couple of times an election just to get awareness and free airtime. And also, just in general, we did something with the Ministry of Communication that did a public service announcements to tell parents that there's 
we lobbied for a, a bill that gives free that, that forces the internet companies to give free filters and let people know about it so we got a budget from the Ministry of Communications to do public service announcements telling parents that they have the right to get free filters and to awaken them to the need of it. They have this little kid who's sort of in his room watching whatever he's doing and his mother knocks on the door, what, you, what would you like for supper? And then the, you see the kid is actually looking at some strip club in the computer and, he's, and she's like, he's all shaking and taking it back. Well, what did you say, mommy? And, and then the, a commercial goes, you never know where your kids are on the internet. Get, your filter, your internet filter for the generals. Uh, that was a big campaign. So TV, yeah, that was my uh, experience with TV. It's interesting, you know, you've mentioned a number of major projects, each one of them kind of its own major, you know, beast, so to speak. You talked about Nachal Haridi, or Net, what's now known as Netzach Yudal, which is the, you know, the, the core for uh, people from Haredi backgrounds, or, or various more religious backgrounds to join the army in a, in a way that's, I guess, safe and accommodating for them. Talked about Hida Brut, which is this major television station. Um, and then, you know, f- f- uh, broadcasting Jewish programming. And then you talk about the public service announcements and the world words can heal campaign around anti-gossip and helping people, you know, speak more kindly. And then also these PSAs about internet. Do you think there's like a thread that connects all of those together because they're very different initiatives, but they're all very ambitious and they're all very, kind of, you know, big ideas and, and really trying to plug certain holes in, in society. Is, is that the thread or what kind of, you wouldn't naturally think the same person would be involved in all of those different types of projects. Right. Good question. I, um, uh, good question. Good question. I, I only see two shifts that happened in my life as far as what I'm interested in. One was like until until age, until Rav Noah, which I was more interested in Tikkunola, more like uh, uh, on the on a physical Gashmiut level. You know, people are hungry, people are starving. It shouldn't be. Let's help them. And you know, there must be some technical solution. You know, let's just figure out greater economic growth. Uh, better distribution of resources, better foreign aid, aid, and making sure the money gets to the right place. That was stage one. Stage two has been more like realization that you know the world needs healing on a dip, deeper moral, spiritual level, and everything else, everything since has sort of been around that that theme that you know we we as both as individuals, as families, as societies, as nations, as the world, you know. Um, have a lot of potential that that we're not fulfilling on a spiritual and moral level, and that if we were more, you know, where we needed to be spiritually and morally, you know, we, a lot of the problems of the world will be solved from that place, or from that higher place that we need to get to. And I buy into definitely this idea that as the Jewish people, uh, you know, that we have uh, special both achrayas and opportunity and potential. And also strategically seems very reasonable, you know, to try to focus on your people and what's around you to make a difference and not to to go too far off to the, conquer the entire universe. Um, so, you know, trying to raise the Jewish people to their spiritual potential uh, on an individual, family, community, national level. And there's many central problems. I think Benadam Havero is a special one. Uh, knowing that uh, Hashem is in the world, runs the world, created us, and you know wants what's good for us, and has a 
as a system that can really help us reach our potential as people and as as uh, families as a nation. And there are certain issues that are really mekalkalim uh, that are really causing trouble for us as individuals and as a society that uh, yeah need to be taken care of. And uh, so so that's the very strong common thread. And uh, sometimes there is a challenge of you know choosing where to put your focus. And and I also on a personal level I like to be where where no one where no man walks. You know to be ahead of the pack. Like you know, where am I really needed? Where is there? No one else is doing it where it wouldn't happen without me. Somehow have that desire to be, you know, ahead of the pack and they go run in, uh, in uh, uncharted uh, territories. And uh, I have that also that gift that I, I don't see, you know, where people don't see the, the possibility, the potential or the, where they see the wall. I see how we can get through the wall and how we can get ahead of it or behind it, around it or break it. And, uh, and so therefore I go for things that sometimes seems like either like impossible or not worth trying or no one else is doing. That's, that's what attracts me the most. I guess that's what I choose. And so so speaking, speaking of walls, we firewalls, filters, it's a, a cute little segue there. But uh, the, the last initiative that you mentioned were these PSAs, very provocative about the need for filters and things like that. So obviously I, I believe that's kind of where a lot of your attention is focused today um, and much more broadly than that, even in, when you talk about internet addiction and porn addiction and all the, the very, very difficult and, and sensitive areas that you're dealing with now. So how did you get into that and why the internet? Why did you see that as a threat? Why did you see it as something that you wanted to address and tackle and that you were qualified to do that? So, right. So I think I was, I think I was chosen for that. Uh, I think Hashem chose me. God chose me for this mission. I, I wasn't really so much looking for it. I'll tell you a little bit of the background story and you'll understand what I mean. I, um, you know, I was working with Aish until about 2006. Um, I, after Aish, I went back more, I still became, I stayed active in Kirov, but I, I went back to more professionally to work more in the, in the therapeutic uh, world. I got more training. Um, and I was working for an organization called Matan Rav Shlomo Yaakovzon, which helps Haredi kids at risk. It was a big government money, uh, 40 million shekels a year. That was coalition money to help Haredi kids at risk. I had to go through the Ministry of Welfare and this uh, NGO called Matan that uh, hired me as a psychologist to help kids, uh, Haredi kids at risk, to, to plan projects, to do project management and create projects with this funding in 21 cities in Israel where there's concentrations of Haredi youth at risk. And uh, it was very interesting and challenging and amazing opportunity and met amazing people and worked with so many people from the government and from the uh, Rabbanim and etc. And uh, I wouldn't say it was the main problem, but we kept coming up across and against this internet addiction and beyond that addiction, sexual addiction in, in, in some pockets of population. And in the, in the, we worked with the secular professional uh, authorities, government authorities from the welfare department and said, it's, uh, what do you mean, it's normal behavior. What do you guys want to leave the kids alone? What's, uh, what's it? But for the, with the, the cultural sensitivity from the Haredi, you know, it's definitely something that we felt that needed to be dealt with. So I, I searched for resources. The, the professional establishment 
that wasn't going to provide any answers for helping with dealing with this. And I wasn't trained in it. And I didn't know too much about it. So I searched for resources. And I came across this organization called Guard Your Eyes on the Internet uh, website. I reached out to them, asked them, do you have any resources in Hebrew? And I called them up and uh, started talking to the person on the other side. Ends up, he's in Israel. He's a chassid, a Karlin chassid from uh, Beitar. And he's working out with Machsan, his uh, basement, his uh, garage. And I uh, sound very interesting. He was helping a lot of people. I saw it already on the website. Hundreds of people were being helped. And he had quite a lot of resources, but not in Hebrew. I said, you know, maybe I can help you. Maybe I can translate something. I met him and uh, I saw there was such a potential, there's such a need for what he was doing. And he already had so much success with such little investment and such little know-how and such little professionalism. This was like, you know, just a, a fellow's doing this as a side something, he was a programmer, he was in on the side, he was helping already hundreds of people. He didn't have an infrastructure, didn't have an organization, didn't have anything. And I started helping him voluntarily for months until uh, it's just, there's so much need for this organization that just grew and grew and grew. So I started spending more time doing it. We started then, uh, we flew to America. We uh, said, okay, we got to take it to the next level. We made a strategic plan. We got a board. We got uh, Ascamas from the Moetzes Ketolei Torah. I went to make a presentation in the Catskills to the Moetzes Ketolei Torah of the Torah Masora, Aguda, Aguda. We met with the OU. We met with the, you know, Torah Masora, uh, Aguda, OU, who else? Uh, forget. And we started, uh, we created a website in Hebrew, in Yiddish, in Spanish, in French. We made it grow. We hired staff. And uh, after a couple of years, I joined them full time. I left my work at, uh, with Haredi Kids at Risk and started doing this uh, full time. I got more training, did some more training with 12 Steps. That's part of what we do, not all we do. And uh, it's been, uh, it's just been taking us, uh, meaning it's just, uh, it wasn't really a choice. It was like, it seemed like uh, uh, no one else was doing it. It's a very complex, sensitive, issue to deal with and that uh, I just seemed I seemed like you know I had what to give I had what to help on many levels uh, it wasn't what I dreamed I would be doing when and at any time in my life but it's just you know it seemed no one else was doing it and uh, somehow Hashem put me together with this fellow and we've been working together about 12 years now I think if I'm not mistaken we've can, can you describe can you describe the challenge as you see it and then in particular, what Guard Your Eyes does to help combat that challenge. Right, so the challenge is, is huge, and we're, we're, we're still trying to tackle and conquer it. It's still a long ways to go, but the challenge is, there's many challenges. One of them is the, first of all, we're, our, our, our target market mainly is, is, the, is the Jewish community. So we're looking at, at the, the challenge is that children, the, starting from the age of, let's say, early today, I won't say seven, eight, nine, ten. I would say the average maybe 13, 14. But the majority of kids are getting exposed to to inappropriate material on the internet, to pornography. Um, a lot of them are de- developing, I don't know what percentage to tell you exactly, but very significant percentages are developing uh, syndromes that I wouldn't say call them addiction, but at least uh, most of them, everyone who gets exposed is developing syndromes of very strong guilt and shame. And it weakens them um, spiritually and emotionally and psychologically because no one speaks to them. There's no normalization of the of what's going on. It's like, you know, it's looked at. They know it's terrible. They know it's bad. And they feel terrible. They feel they're all alone. And this, uh, part of the challenge is, first of all, is to minimize 
the damage that they're causing themselves and by the perception of the sins is so so bad and guilty and, and, and shamed as what they're doing. And also to explain, some people, the kids don't know what's, um, what, what uh, the risks are and what's, uh, that's one thing. Then we have a more a serious problem, like, you know, more adult people that are really falling into addiction that they want to stop and they can't, and that's as many different levels, anywhere from just very light, um, addictive behaviors that are no big deal, just they need a little help, just like quitting smoking or, or getting on a better diet. And with uh, very basic tools, we can help them. Urge management, making a plan, motivation, how to deal with falls, maintenance, uh, uh, relapse prevention, etc. There's, uh, and we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people either are reaching out. We have 35,000 people signed up to us, and I don't think it's a drop in the bucket of what's really out there. I think it's 10 times more the people would want to reach out if they knew and if they, if they, if they heard about it and if they knew they could help them. And then there's the very hardcore addictions that really need uh, much more help, which is uh, it's either therapy or 12 steps or other types of uh, recovery programs or, or rehabs. But that's a very small percentage. And for that, there are other resources. But because we're online and because uh, it's such an, uh, uh, people are embarrassed to, to reach out to a therapist or that, so they, we still have an opportunity to help thousands and thousands of people for example, it's not our main focus, but I would say over 2,000 people, for example, went through us to 12-step programs um, through OGYU, not because that's our specialty, just because we, we could be a bridge for them to, 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 to reach out anonymously first, not have to expose themselves. But the bulk of what we do, there's 35,000 people, the majority of them are just people just with, uh, with a little support, a little guidance, a little chizok. Uh, they can be helped not to fall deeper and to get uh, to break through, break free from from addictive behaviors and to get back to, you know, feeling good about themselves. And sometimes just people need just, okay, it's no big deal. You had a little fall, get on with life. Don't make a big deal about it. It's normal, happens. You know, we're living in a generation where the challenge is tremendous. Sometimes we have a percentage of people just, you know, sort of spiral down from shame and self-hatred and self-loathing. They criticize themselves too much and they just need a little push and a little building their self-worth but the majority of people are behavioral issues and it's all the ages again we're trying to to create the resources for teens and for adults for men and women uh and we also have another department that helps spouses you know so sometimes the wives find out my husband has been doing it they feel betrayed they feel this that and we try to obviously prevent divorces and rehabilitate the trust help the spouses you know deal with that and help help the, the struggling spouse to deal with his addictive behaviors uh so there's endless amount of work and then there's prevention like you said you know the whole filter side filter aspect of it if it's lobbying in the knesset for filter laws if it's uh, trying to create solutions uh, uh or teach people what what's available or um it's it's endless i mean there's in that field there's more organizations but even then we feel like there's a need like there's tag in america that helps get filters but uh, they're only for people who come to their offices and have to do this their way it's a little bit right wing for some people and so we do feel that there's still a need that we could but it's uh, we're also trying it's very hard the challenge is to prioritize where we should put our efforts because also we have different languages hebrew english spanish french yiddish we have a big website and uh, we don't have enough resources to do everything and to do everything well. So really the challenge is for us is to, to really try to focus on what we're most needed with, which we feel is the giving the treatment to those who are you know, falling. That's our main. You mentioned, you mentioned the idea of, uh, it sounds like you promote a, a, 
sort of a, an approach of normalization whereby you help people understand that if they're if they're falling to temptations if they're if they're struggling with viewing pornography online and and the, the various things that come along with that that they shouldn't feel you know they shouldn't become stuck in in shame and self-guilt and self-loathing etc how do you balance that with the fact that there are some very clear proscriptions you know prohibitions from a jewish perspective for somebody who's concerned about you know following jewish law and things like that against this, these behaviors and 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 some of the things that come from these behaviors and at the same time telling them you know it's okay don't feel so guilty and so forth how do you balance those two aspects? first before i answer that uh, clearly uh, we are, we, do, I, we, make, we do make the distinction i mean for some people or or highly addi- addicted the main focus is not the normalization not because we don't feel like you know not because we believe they should feel ashamed of themselves and terrible about themselves just because that's not the main thing that's holding them back it's not you know but for some people who are usually they're addicted you know the behaviors are not so extreme or they're just falling here or there for them the main thing is the normalization because just besides if it wasn't for the shame or if it wasn't for the safe loathing they wouldn't deteriorate they were just okay fine you know i had a fall two months ago i had a fall three weeks ago and i have a fall every two three months i have a little fall for that kind of person normalization is very important because that you know exactly that that safe loathing and that shame can cause them the deterioration that's number one so it's not for everybody that's the main thing it's always we're not promoters of shame and for anybody but for some cases the eliminating the shame is, is very crucial for others it's less crucial but nothing good comes of shame usually anyway but but to answer your question, how do you balance the two things? You know, we, we like to use the analogy of, of Lashon Hara. No one's going to belittle Lashon Hara. No one's going to say Lashon Hara is no big deal. You know, we've got the Chafetz Chaim Heritage Foundation doing amazing work. The Chafetz Chaim did amazing work. I think it's pretty much expect, accepted in the Jewish world that Lashon Hara is a terrible thing. It's one of us, maybe a, a worst or as Chamor as the three Chamoros. It's, no one's going to belittle Lashon Hara. No one's going to say, oh, Lashon Hara is no big deal. Everyone does. And then on the other hand, when we do it, you know, no one, you know, feels, you know, no one, but I would say the average guy is, doesn't have, gets he doesn't have like a terrible conscience about, oh, yeah, I spoke Lashon Hara yesterday, I can't believe it, how did that happen to me again? Oh, three weeks ago, I spoke Lashon Hara, how am I going to look in the mirror? How can I go daven today? How can I put on feeling? But a guy who falls in whatever he falls, which again, uh, who's going to, if we have a rough, said, no, Lashon Hara is much more or less than it. I think they're both... Chamoros, uh, they're both things that are Jewishly, halachically serious, and but that's not, you know, we can see very clearly that in some things we don't take that approach, and I think part of the reason that happens to people is because A, somehow something inborn in like, you know, the sexual that there's something shameful, you know, very in, inborn about, because it, it's something sexual, it's hidden, it feels like, you know, like something's wrong with me more than and also because no one knows what is going on with another another person's life or another person's mind. That's the other reason. It's like regardless of what it was, you know, because it's so secret and no one would ever know. Um, so uh, Lashonara is quite, you know, oh, I see everyone does it. No one's so careful. And so I guess it's really no big deal. That's part of it. Not that it's not a big deal, but, you know, that's the sort of like, you know, no one's going to get Right, not to dwell on it and not to just right. be obsessed about it. But I think, kind of right. put it into the, into the category of other... Right issues that people might have or other feelings. Uh, that those are the may, two may... things. Uh, again, so one of the answers wouldn't be enough. I think somehow the, the sexual thing does have a very 
you know, I don't know, on a Freudian level or other level, that's like, you know, obviously a person is something deep about it, about that reminds us of our, of our, of our, yeah, our animalistic sort of nature, which, you know, pretty much shows in our faces when someone might have urges, which is a little more obvious and more, more challenging than just having an urge to say something not the most positive about someone else. Uh, but even that, you know, there's, there's probably things, you know, when a guy would, you know, if, you, if you're a bit of a baltaiwa with food, you wouldn't feel so guilty about that, even if you might overeat. So it's, I think it's a combination of those two things. And, and probably third, there are, you know, even though for Lashonara, there also is quite a bit of uh, uh, awareness and uh, PR about the, the punishments and this and the other. Uh, but some, I think also for this, uh, there is quite a strong... PR and like the holy books about the severity. But again, none of the answers by themselves explain the thing. I think maybe a combination of the three gives the, the clear picture why. why. And, and, and the, so the, to answer your question, the balance, again, I think we, I think people already quite have, have the, we don't quite have the heavy, the heaviness of, uh, I agree with there needs to be a balance, but we don't feel, you know, that's exactly our Christ. It's, we feel like, you know, the, the, right now, the balance is a little too much towards, for, for a lot of people, towards the guilt, the shame, and the severity. And, and for those people, uh, I think normalization of, again, it's not, it's not necessarily, we're not normalizing, say, pornography. We can also make a distinction um, for teens, let's say. Uh, we're not saying pornography is normal. I think normalizing the struggle. The struggle and be also, even, even beyond that, even like, you know, even. Uh, even masturbation, you know, uh, if that's allowed to say the word here, but uh, even on this podcast, okay, it's so I'm saying <laughs> we make a distinction of masturbation or pornography. So pornography, we're not going to say, oh, it's normal. You fell again. We're not going to make the guy guilty and shamed even about that. It's not going to have so much, but it, there's a difference between, I think we do have a feeling that for teenagers to, to put up sort of like a, an expectation that's of zero tolerance, it's never going to happen. It should never happen for as far as, as masturbation from what we understand both from speaking to the Gedolim and speaking to different things and also from, from reading the holy books, it seems to be uh, sort of an understanding that it's almost beyond the, every normal teenage uh, ability to have a totally clean uh, teenagehood without that. But I was, I was going to ask you because, you know, people, zero tolerance yeah. for pornography, meaning that it is possible and it's not too hard. Right. But when it comes to the, you know, something like masturbation, you know, I was going to ask you because here we are, people are living in this hyper-sexualized society. And yet for, for a religious teenager, there is no permitted outlet for that sexual energy. And for, for that, first of all, that which is already natural and inborn, A, and B, that which is being fueled vigorously by a hyper-sexualized or exceedingly permissive society around them whereas in other cultures they may have you know either explicit access or just even the softer modes of of you know outlets or expressions what what do you advise young people is the goal sort of a zero tolerance kind of thing and or is or is they not that not even a reasonable expectation for them because they'll they'll fail and then feel bad about themselves like what do you tell a young person it doesn't even have to be a 13 year old it could be a 20 year old so it's exactly like Lashon Hara, meaning that's a, it's a, it's a very good parallel. You know, when you're not going to say, oh, you know, Lashon Hara is very hard. We expect you to fall and it's okay. Don't worry about it, which is pretty much what you mean. You know, you don't want, you're not saying that and you wouldn't say that and you don't want to say that because you don't need to say that. And the kid should understand that Lashon Hara is, is awesome. 
and it's very hard to be super, you know, 100% zero tolerance with Lashonara. You should try, you should aim for it. Uh, and if you have to weigh your words very, very carefully, who you're speaking to and what, how is it going to be understood. You don't want to give a head there. Oh, you know, well, the, uh, chances are you going to fall. So, you know, so don't drive yourself crazy and don't try too hard. And, you know, why, why have such a hard time? Just, you don't want to go all the way to say that, uh, I don't think. But, you know, you have to work, walk a fine line. But the message is, yes, you know, there's no hetter. We're not giving a hetter. No one's going to give you a hetter. No one's going to say, oh, you know, it's too hard. So, you know, it's motor it's, or it's too hard. Therefore, it's motor to fall every once in a while. No one's saying that. It's asr. And, you know, there's a lot of asr things that we're next to that if it's lying, if it's Lashon Hara, if it's Lotachmod, Lotikom, Lotito, it's Lotisne. There's many things we do on Asvarim. You did it. You, you were mean to your sister. You were mean to your brother. You, you spoke Lashonai. You spoke Lachilos. You stole. You did. Okay. You know, you do. You try not to. And it's a good thing not to. And if the more you can, the better. And uh, the higher Madrega you can reach Adraba. But just know that it's a, it's a challenge. And, you know, and you should do your best. And if you have a fall, Mishka Ferlach, you know what happens. It happens to the best. And, you know, just get up and, you know, brush it off. And yes, it could lead to to some sort of a weakening in like, oh, if, it's, if they're so lenient on me, so I guess, you know, I'm just going to not. There is that risk, but what alternative do you have? You don't have, there's no magic solution or magic pill uh, to help people with that. And the, and the risks of, of, of shaming and, and making this, we'll see it very, very clearly in our work, how it backfires, how it creates um, more psychological, more emotional, more spiritual problems. And we definitely feel that that's not the solution, and that's not uh, you know that's not where it's the, where the the success is going to come. Uh, so you have to walk the fine line, and we feel right from, for a lot of teams, it's the normalization is very very important. At the risk, but yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it could be we feel overall we are going to be gaining much more healthier, stronger, more resilient teenagers by creating a more normal uh, expectation and and telling the truth about it. And also people are, are clueless. We find like, you know, kids, you know, don't know the difference between what's just a wet dream and what's actual masturbation and uh, to the extreme of even uh, uh, ridiculous stories. Like if a fellow was, you know, trying, it was masturbating to the day, so he shouldn't should have a wet dream at night because he thought that would be even worse or he's even watch porn. So in order to shoot, should have, like, you know, people, teenage kids, some of them are clueless and telling them, First of all, what what the what's mutter, what's asr, what talacha is clearly that wet dreams are not the same as this, and that you should try your best. And it's a challenge for a lot of people, and for most people, and for all kids, it's a challenge at some point, to some level. And you're totally normal to normalize the feelings, to normalize the struggle, to normalize the attraction. And I think that's going to create a much more healthier teenager than just scaring him to death that, you know, he's going to burn in hell if he just happens to him or if it's going to happen again and make sure it shouldn't happen. So you mentioned uh, 12 steps earlier, and I think a lot of people are familiar with that through popular media and, and other resource or other sources in the context of alcohol, drugs, uh, gambling, things of that nature. Can you speak to that a little bit more when it comes to sexual challenges or dysfunction even and how, what role that might play in, in this particular arena? And, and you, you, cause you mentioned specifically that maybe in hardcore quote unquote cases or more heavily addicted types of cases, the, two, the 2000 cases that you sort of passed on to higher levels of, of intervention through 12 step groups, 
um, why would that relate to this particular situation and how, and, and how would it help people? And, and what would they you know gain from that, that they maybe wouldn't gain from the website that right. you have? So um, first of all, they, they can get to it through our website because we can help them, you know, figure out if it's for them or not and also get them, uh, you know, to get an evaluation and to help them get into it in the right way. So it's still, that's where they should come. And 15% or so of, of the people who come to our website uh, are probably, you know, candidates for that, kind of program and it's not like you know our, our number one you know choice of program but it is very available you know throughout the world it's free and it's effective you know there are probably other good uh therapies for for heavy addicts uh but it's definitely a, one of the alternative that's you know that's that's easy to reach to and and accessible and in the jewish community it's become quite uh, developed in this area so for those 15 percent, you know it's very it's pretty clear you know when, when we talk about a heavy case it could be first of all they're usually adults because the program it's a program that for for sure 18 and under it's not even shy it's not a, appropriate and even that you probably need a, a more maturity spiritual and, and emotional maturity to do a program it's a little bit of a it's not complicated, but it's uh, spiritually, emotionally, it's it's a, he- it's a deep and heavy program. You know, we found from our experience that 21 and under, it's not really, we're not going to send their kids. And also, we're not going to send women there uh, most 99% of the time. And and so, but the cases like people have been to live sexual, they paid for sexual services on a regular basis when their addiction has crossed past the screen and they're doing dangerous activities, infidelity, or or paid sexual services, or to the extreme that we're talking about addiction, that's hours, five hours a day uh, in front of the computer and already endangering their their either their lives or their their families or or so in cases that are more extreme like that, uh, we definitely, you know, uh, encourage them to to speak to one of our volunteers, we have uh, volunteers that are specialized in in seeing who's fit for them, and also trying to get them over the over the the fears and the hesitations to try the program. And uh, for them, we've you know we've seen we've seen hundreds or even thousands of success stories. People feel that they got their lives back through the program. It's an amazing program for whoever it's it's right it's it's deep it's spiritual it's effective it changes people's lives in a very meaningful way and it gives them uh, freedom from usually addictions that they've been carrying for many many years it's not just uh, something that shows up one day and then they end up in 12 step we're talking about people being either many years or even decades involved in that kind of uh, sexual addictive behaviors and they they find a way to get freedom it's uh what happens in the 12 step environment that allows them to find that freedom in particular that they couldn't find just with the online right. resources? So a few things. First of all, it's, it's the, it's, it's the group support, meaning it's uh, people with the same struggle that really care about you and that they're here to support you and that you can reach out to in real time. You know, the, the addictive behaviors like, you know, when, when you, a person's all alone in front of his drug of choice, whatever it is, you know, not it's stronger than him. That's what you know. What's the how they define addiction? There's no one definition of addiction, but that's one way to see addiction. Is just you know, it's something that's stronger than you. No matter how much will you bring to it, whenever it overcomes you, person just can't say no. And when they have uh, someone they they can reach out in real time, uh, either by phone or they come to a meeting or and 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 they instead of running to their to drug, and that's what they, these groups are built and trained and 
sort of like socialized to do to be there for the person like sort of 24 7 it's not like a therapist you go see once a week and if you're real nude you call them every day it's like they're really there you have a sponsor that's with you you can call them whenever you want you have a in your phone they give you 30 friends from your home group that you can call anytime and they're encouraged to call them whenever there's an urge comes they encourage them to call their friends, you know, four or five friends every time they, they have an urge. So A, they train them to break that addictive cycle, that addictive behavior by instead of going to the drug to, to lean or reach out for help from the group. That's number one. Number two, the, the coming out of the, the shame and the self-hatred and the being all alone for many, many, many years, which is weighs on them and just feeds the addiction even more because like the guilt and the shame just feeds doing it again and again and again, feeling emptier, feeling more depressed, feeling more inadequate, feeling more unworthy. And here they see people, A, like themselves, like, you know, oh, so I'm not alone, I'm not the only crazy guy. And they see that usually it's, you know, normal, nice people, you know. And and also they they feel the acceptance from the group. They, the group makes them feel loved, accepted. They don't judge them for what they do, which anywhere else they would be judged. You know, if they went into a room and said, hi, my name is this, and I'm a sexaholic, good luck to you, you know, no one's going to, clap hands for you but if you go to one of these 12-step groups that's what they get they get they get a clap of hands and clean two three days they say i'm clean a, a year i'm clean two years or ten years and whatever they say they get clapped and you know they get a lot of love from the group and support and being able to shed that that, that secret from them and share with other people in real life and not be on a screen we have that in graduates to a certain degree also we have forums we have phone conferences and people can do that but there's nothing like doing it live in a group uh, where they see you and they hear you and you expose your your weakness and your history and your face to other people who are struggling with the same thing. It's a very therapeutic uh, um, therapeutic process for these uh, addicts, and and they work through. It. They you know they have different uh, techniques. They work on their connection with God and and they're, they're letting go when something comes and, and you know. Um, and developing uh, really faith in Hashem that uh, he can take him through this and uh, a lot of beautiful principles and ideas. I was going to ask you about the spiritual piece because I know a lot of 12-step programs are built, I mean, by definition, a 12-step program is built around spirituality and embracing a higher power and things like that. In in this case, it seems like a lot of the um, the challenges that people are coming here with are sometimes a result of spiritual issues right or spiritual restrictions right i can't do these things look at these things act in these ways and yet at the same time a 12-step group is going to encourage a spiritual solution to those very things how does that kind of right coalesce? right so it is true that it, let's say for for a religious jew uh he might come to you know the the, the you know his behavior is being judged as inappropriate more by religious standards than by, let's say, universal standards. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's what, what fuels the, both the addiction and the psychological challenge and problem uh, is the fact that the person sees what he's doing as something that he doesn't want to do. So it doesn't matter for what really for what reasons he thinks that he shouldn't be doing it. You know, as a, I assume you know, a guy who eats too much mayo, even if he like downs like half a jar of mayo a day, you're not going to find him in a 12-step group, you know. You might find him like uh, a doctor. Mayonnaise Anonymous. <laughs> but, but why? Because, okay, it might be not healthy. He might not be able to stop eating it. And he might cause him heart problems, and he might end up in doctor's offices. 
but it sounds as he's not going to develop too much around that, you know, guilt, shame, uh, this, and he's probably not going to end up eating a, a jar a day and then two jars a day and then three jars a day. You know, there could be something addictive about, I don't know, the sodium, the salt, I don't know what else. Also chocolate, you know, you're not, you have chocolate addiction, but, you, you know, it's not so easy to fall into chocolate addiction. But this thing, you know, A, it's both, it's both addictive on a, on a universal level, you know, physiological, you know, dopamine. Pornography, they say, like, releases more dopamine than, like, you know, hard drugs, seriously. So it's, it has the potential to become more addictive on a universal, psychological, physical, medical level. And, and combined with that, there's true that, you know, that as a religious Jew, you know, a person feels guilty about it and bad about it. So there is that, that adds the, you know, the, the extra layer of, of problem to the, to the issue, which, which is, you know, whoever does something, you know, if, if, the, if the problem wasn't like eating mayo, but I don't know, some other thing that most people think would be a disgusting action that he would be embarrassed to do in public, he probably would have a more potential to become addictive. Oh, I'm so terrible, I do this and no one knows. And what if people found out? It's, it has like, you know, this, this, as we said before, like a negative downward spiral that the guilt fuels the addiction, the addictive behavior, and the, you know, you feel less well-being, you feel more problematic, and if you're more problematic, you feel more you needed to escape to, to something. But even if it stayed just at, the, at that level, like, you know, okay, the guy does it once a week, in the secular world, people say, hey, that's not addiction, that's nothing, what's the problem? You know, once a week, that's totally normal. Normal kid does it 10 times a week, right? you only do it once a week. Again, chances are, we, you know, if in secular terms, universal terms, the behavior would not be considered any problem. Chances are it's not something that warrants a 12-step program, but it's not an absolute because at the end of the day, if a person can't stop and, he, and, and the damage that he feels both emotionally or spiritually or, or in his life is quite heavy. So there is, you know, I'm not an advocate of 12 steps for everybody at all. And I'm, you know, very careful who we recommend 12 steps for. And, but uh, the fact that a person, uh, for whatever reasons, feels that what he's doing is, is, is harmful and he wants to stop, but he can't, I don't know how important it is, you know, what level it is or who's judging what it is that he's doing to be so important, you know, if something, you know, could be that it shows that the problem may be somewhere else, could be some sort of perfectionism. And in, but, and in those cases, you feel that the, there's a spiritual solution to that. No, so again, you asked me a question that, you know, it had two sides, so I answered you to one side. As far as how do you solve, uh, so in most cases, it's not a spiritual problem, meaning it's not like, oh, he's a religious guy, and if he wasn't a religious guy, everything would be fine and dandy, and if the Torah didn't say you're not allowed, then he just wouldn't be anywhere near it. The guys who are like that don't end up in 12 steps, because you they could, some of them doing something gets worse, but the guys like that don't usually end up in 12 steps, and we try that they don't end up, because the guy who's, whose behavior is not so extreme that according to secular or universal standard, it would say, oh, if it wasn't just for the religious aspect, there's nothing wrong here with the guy, chances are he's not gonna end up in 12 steps. So if that's your question, but, but even for a guy who's a somewhat, it's, it's, the challenge is that it's, it's very mixed in for a Jew, you know, it's, it's both, it's both universally and psychologically clearly something here is not right and addictive in the behavior. And also he has the aspect on top of that, it's, it's, it makes it worse that it's really Asher and the Torah says it's a terrible thing. And I feel even worse, not just on a, um, uh, just an average disgusting person. I'm also an evil person who does things that are, the Torah says I shouldn't be doing. And yes, it makes it heavier and more problematic and the impact emotionally and spiritually is greater. But to answer your question, so how can a spiritual solution, the spiritual solution doesn't say you shouldn't be doing this. The spiritual solution focuses on the, the abstinence that the 12 steps 
recommends or, or espouses is not from a spiritual or, or religious point of view. It comes from a citizen. You're, you have an illness. And the more you feed it, if you have an allergy, they call it an allergy. If you feed your allergy, you eat peanuts, you know, you're going to get a, a rush. You know, just don't eat it. Don't, don't consume your alcohol. Don't consume your pornography. If you do, you won't be able to stop. So it's not really like, from that aspect, they're not addressed as a religious thing. Oh, you shouldn't do it anymore. They do have this thing that don't do it anymore. You're, when you're in the program, zero tolerance. But it's not for religious reasons. They look at it as that's the medical uh, aspect of the program. It's like, you know, you have an allergy, you have sickness, you have an illness, you're taking the stuff. It makes you crazy. It makes you not be able to stop. You want more. Don't do it. The spiritual uh, is, part comes in the solution, not in the definition of the problem. The definition of the problem, they don't address it on a spiritual level. On a spiritual solution, so they say, you know, you, you, this thing is bigger than you. You're ill. There's no way out of this. This is something that's, you know, deep, deep inside you. There's no way out. And that's what they agree with. That's, that's how they, they view it. And only a greater power, you know, only connecting to the almighty God, the king of the universe that has all the powers. He can do anything. And if you attach yourself to him and you, you know, and you do his will in your life in all aspects on a true deep level, he'll help you conquer this problem. Like he'll help you conquer any problem in life. Just have the talchan in him. He won't die if you don't take pornography and Hashem will, keep, will watch you and help you. And one day at a time, Hashem will be with you. And if you trust that and you internalize and you work on that, it definitely, you can imagine, has the power to, to help us and change us in life if, you, if that's your focus. And that's a big part of the program. So, and it works, obviously. Rav Tursky, Dr. Tursky, Rav Tursky says, like, you know, what's the difference? Why is the Musar Shir doesn't work? You know, how could it be these 12 steps programs works? And he says the difference is because when you go, when you go to Musar Shir, when you come out, no one tells you and you don't believe that, you know, if I don't listen to them, I'm dead. You know, if I don't do this, what the Rav said, I'm finished. But in 12 steps, you know, they, 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 you turn, they make you, they help the person internalize, you know, like you're, you use again, you're dead. You don't listen to us, you're finished. You know, and, and some of these people I've seen, I don't know, if, let's say death, but they've seen like pretty deep places that they don't want to get back to. And they see how some people end up where they end up. So it's more real to them that, you know, if they don't follow the program, they're, you know, finished. So it's like when you have that kind of a mindset and you listen, you follow a program, then the program works. And if you follow the Muslim program to that same extent, it probably also works. So that's the spiritual solution of the 12 programs to my understanding. In closing, can you just share one or two stories of people who have been helped, been uplifted, been transformed through this work? Maybe they were in a very, very dark place and, you know, their lives were restored, their families were restored, obviously without breaking confidences but just you know, just the, the the structure of the stories that you may have witnessed okay i mean uh nothing dramatic came to mind except one so uh, you know the the non-dramatic stories are, are really hundreds and, and thousands of them of 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 men who've been you know living double lives so i'll tell you the the non-dramatic and i'll tell you one more dramatic you know but it's uh, more the non-dramatic are still i think quite dramatic when you get to know them it's you know people that that you know be living double lives and feeling like they're the only one and it's usually starts at an early age you know either from teens our average you you know user in, in gye is probably about 32 33 34 and married with kids so it's like you know they've been carrying it probably usually since age 13 14 i haven't spoke about it to anybody they feel like you know it's weighing on them they're usually very you know the guys who come to us they're, they're the guys who care the year they could be you know 
you know, really working themselves. But somehow this thing, they can't kick off. They can't finish. They can't get over. It's quite addictive and it's quite, you know, hard to find a way out of it. It's easy to fall back. And once people fall back, it's easy to like, okay, what's the point of trying? So that's your average guy. And and, uh, your, your average solution is that he comes in he finds out he's not the only crazy one. He's not alone, and they, no one's judging him. And he's got some tools, and he's got some way to, you know, reignite his, his his commitment that he probably tried a thousand times already. But it's like, you know, this time I'm going to try again, and this time he has some more, you know, science-based solutions that can help him. If it's making a plan, and if it's working a little more on getting clear why he wants to stop, and shedding off some of the shame, and and figuring out how to do with this impulses and urges when they come and given a few techniques and also once these falls it gets it's okay that we have this 90-day program that you know you track your, your progress and if you had a fall like automatically you get chizok and says you know just get up no big deal you have a forum that a lot of people you know they post their the struggles and they read other people's ages they're not alone they get to be best friends with people that you know from all over the world from and you know sharing in one place that you can have a partner and sponsor program where you sign up and you're in touch with someone, you know, you speak to them on a daily or weekly basis, you join, you join a phone conference. And a few months later after that, you know, they start to really see real hope that, you know, they might have had a fall here and there, but it's not like, you know, something new that they've never experienced, like a new freedom, like they have air in their lungs, they have hope, they have, you know, they have a few weeks of clean, you know, without having falls. And, and and a couple of years later, you know, they, you know, they, they're, they're, they, they feel like, you know, they don't live a double life anymore. They tell their wives they, uh, or they don't, you know, depending on when, what and the other, but uh, they, they you know, this thing is arm's length away, you know, they've, they've been there, they've done that and they know it's not a struggle for them anymore and they live uh, happily ever after and have, you know, other normal struggles as we all do. And go on with life. That's uh, your average story, um, and they're very grateful. And they, you know, some of them come and tell their stories, and you can read about it in the forum hundreds and thousands of stories like that. A dramatic story right now. I comes to mind two stories. One uh, quite similar, uh, strangely. Um, one story is that my partner saved a girl from suicide in in, a, in some city in the world. A uh, youngish girl was about 17, 18, who reached out to us through our, through our hotline anonymously, and um, she had issues and psychological issues as well. A lot of the girls who come to us, you know, come with backgrounds of sexual abuse or deeper problems, usually coupled with addiction for girls, it's higher percentages. And she reached out, and um, somehow, you know, we, we managed to. She did get into a 12 step program, and we sent an ambulance to that saved her life, I think, even once or even twice. And then uh, a couple years later, after she'd been in a program, she's married and uh, she's helping other people. She's a sponsor, she's a mentor for other girls, and it's uh, she's still you know, youngish, 22, 23, and uh, you know, turned her life around in a very serious way. A similar story happened in Israel. I had to actually drive to to also a city here. A uh, similar situation. I don't think it was a real like suicide attempt. The other one was a real suicide attempt. We really saved her. This one was like I don't know if it was just more of a threat, suicide threat. And and also she got we got her to a rehab in Retorno, and she became a volunteer. And she was a single mother. She raised her as a kid, and she's got a job, and she's um, also helped a lot of girls, and she's also involved uh, with support uh, through our organization. Um, yeah, I don't know, I'm sure there's more if I thought about it, but uh, that's what's coming to mind. 
we've gone for a long time. So why don't you let us people know where can they learn more about this and, and what can they expect if they check out the website, guardyourize.org? They're both guardyourize.com will do. Um, again, we have, we have resources and help for all the different levels of struggle. And also people are not struggling. We have something called the GYE boost um, that you can sign on to the website. Uh, I think it's gyeboost.org. Yeah, gyeboost.org uh, or .com, either one. Uh, both of them work. And you can sign up for Chizok. That's for the general population. We have Rabbanim and, and gyeboost.com. We have uh, daily Chizok, WhatsApp, and email um, about this topic. for So people just to stay strong. Everyone needs a little bit of Chizok. Um, from across the spectrum that make special messages for us or that we find in different places with permission. Uh, that's one. And then the main website, guardyourize.com, we have resources for all the different levels of struggle, um, from teenage struggles to heavy struggles to just someone who's falling occasionally and just needs a little bit of chizok and a bit of tools, how to like, you know, get a little stronger and all the way to any addiction at any level that has to do with pornography or sexual addiction. Uh, for both men, women, also we have support for the spouses. We have a whole network of support, forum, phone conference, a hotline. If a wife is dealing with a husband that she, you know, she needs help with, um, we're there for that. And we have obviously um, volunteers and staff. Uh, for women, we have women, and for men, we have men, and for different ages. And um, we have a Yiddishia website if someone wants in Hebrew, gye.org.il. Everything can be accessed from the main website. And we have uh, also, we're putting out uh, materials for teens and for parents, how to deal with the struggle. In Hebrew, we already have published materials. In English, we're, we're in the process of just finalizing some drafts that we'll be uh, publicizing to help how to, how to guide teenagers. We find there's a lot of need for that. And we're creating, uh, in Hebrew, we have a teenage site. In English, we're about to launch a teenage site specialized for them. But right now, we do have resources on our website for teens. So anyone who's educators, therapists, parents, and with someone to struggle, we, you know, feel free to join. It's free. Everything is free. We are supported by donations, both of members and people who like our work, but there's no charge. It's anonymous. There's no way to, to know who's, who you are if you sign up. Um, we'd love to help anyone who needs help. Amazing. Yechezkel Stelzer, guard your eyes, among many other incredible pursuits that he has undertaken in his life and will continue to god willing for many years to come thank you so much for joining us thank you ari pleasure this has been ari koretsky on jews you should know please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at itunes stitcher or wherever you consume podcasts find us on social media at jews you should know if you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.